this notion that you could presume that prayer is just another intervention, such as a medication or radiation treatment, and that you could measure its impact, um, raises really interesting problems and challenges. You know, uh, suddenly you start to say, well, what about the dose of prayer? What about, uh, uh, can you overpray or mispray? What if the person receiving the prayer uh, has a different belief uh, or religion than the person praying. And it, it leads to all sorts of bizarre and strange questions. And so, you know, I thought it was really an interesting sort of little foray into really how we sort of believe and, and arrive at decisions in medicine. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Dr. Rosen is a colorectal surgeon at the Peter Lougheed Centre in Calgary, Alberta. Dr. Rosen has long delighted the Calgary surgical community with his entertaining and thoughtful critiques of a whole host of philosophical and bioethical concepts and how they pertain to surgery, ranging from evidence-based medicine to how we might ration surgical resources in a pandemic like COVID. We recorded our conversation with Dr. Rosen back in May of 2021 but many of Dr. Rosen's insights, particularly about COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy, are still very cogent and continue to hold relevance today. We would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics we discussed this week or any other prior episodes on Twitter at CanJSurge or by email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. Dr. Rosen, welcome to the podcast. Where did you grow up and where did you do your training? Thanks, Chad and uh, Amir. It's uh, great to be on this podcast and I've really uh, enjoyed listening to uh, other uh, other speakers. Um, so to answer your question, I grew up in Toronto and then uh, went to Queens for undergraduate uh, in Kingston, Ontario. And there I studied uh, uh, a very uh, uh, practical and financially secure area, uh, uh, namely philosophy and uh, did that for uh, uh, for my undergrad, uh, and then subsequently pursued it for a few more years overseas. Um, and that was when I decided to go into medicine and ultimately came back and studied, uh, uh, did a year of uh, the prerequisites and then got into med school at Queen's again and then uh, went there. Um, and then um, after I finished uh, uh, medical school, or as I was trying to decide what to do, I was somewhat torn. And although I don't think I had really a um, a surgical personality or whatever we mean by that. Uh, it wasn't sort of something that one would normally have thought would apply to me. I uh, ended up uh, 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 planning to go into urology uh, and started off my training at Queen's with the expectation that I would move on to a urology program a few years later. Uh, but uh, fate uh, uh, had something different planned. I was very influenced by a couple of general surgeons in Kingston uh, and ultimately decided to go into uh, general surgery and uh, uh, got a position out in Calgary. And, uh, and then uh, sort of the rest is uh, history. It was, uh, it's been a great, uh, great ride so far. You know, the, the background in my, in my mind leading up to this this week was I, I recently listened uh, um, on, on the weekend to a podcast, uh, Dax Shepard's podcast, which, as you know, is the top 10 in the world right now. And he interviewed Prince Harry. And you can imagine the stuff that they talked about, and and it was a it was a riveting uh, interview, quite honestly. And I certainly wouldn't call you uh, Prince Harry. That that's in no way what I mean. But but you are you know a member of the Rosen family, of of Rosen uh, suits, uh, so to speak, which is really an iconic brand across the country. And I'm I'm curious, um, 
you know, how you, maybe I'm using the wrong terminology, but how you broke free from that. Because my understanding is certainly that um, you are one of the few family members who's off not only in medicine, but doing something uh, potentially different. And I could only imagine growing up in Toronto with that environment, uh, how difficult maybe it is to, to break free and, and create your own path. And I'm just curious if you're willing to talk about that with us. You know, it's it's not as exciting or, or uh, dramatic as one would expect uh, because my parents were both um, uh, uh, very uh, humble people and uh, uh, really didn't um, uh, have expectations for us uh, as we were growing up as to what we would do with our lives. I um, uh, my father worked very hard um, and uh, ultimately, as you know, became very successful, but uh, neither of them pushed me in any way to go into business or uh, into the family business, especially. My brother did end up going into the business and he, he runs the uh, uh, Harry Rosens now, but, uh, uh, you know, that just happened to be, you know, his personal choice. Um, you know, I often, both my, neither of my parents went uh, uh, really past grade nine or 10 in, in high school. So I think they were just delighted that we went on to university. And, uh, 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 you know, as a, uh, a parent now with a son who's going into uh, university, you know, I think, how will I feel if, uh, if uh, he chooses something uh, not terribly practical with great job prospects? But uh, I have to remember my parents were uh, uh, open-minded about that sort of thing. Um, I do have an interesting anecdote or two, though, about uh, uh, about being, you know, Harry Rosen's son. Uh, when I went to school in Kingston, Ontario, there was a, a, a local fuel magnet there named Harry Rosen uh, and no relation to me. And he actually had a son named Wayne Rosen who went through the medical school there and uh, was well liked. So often people would ask me whether I was the Wayne Rosen and they were inevitably referring to Harry Rosen, the fuel magnet son. And they had a little... <laughs> They had a little, uh, uh, you know, their trucks would drive around town and they had this little sign on them that said, don't wait till you're half frozen, buy your fuel from Harry Rosen. And so uh, uh, it was kind of this uh, funny thing. So I was quite anonymous in Kingston and uh, no one there really uh, knew. They figured if I wasn't related to the the Harry Rosens of Kingston, it really didn't matter. So, <laughs> Well, you're certainly not uh, unknown in, in, uh, in the Calgary surgical community, not least because of the delightful and fantastic ways that you break down complex problems. And I, I'm sure that it's, this is in no small way because of the fact that you took unexpected forays like into things like philosophy. But you've given so many of these iconic talks like all. And one of my favorites was this one that you gave on intercessory prayer. And our listeners might be thinking, what in the world is Amir asking about? So maybe I'll just ask you to briefly kind of summarize what you talked about uh, in that talk on intercessory prayer. I often get interested in these funny little uh, rabbit hole topics and then go down them. Uh, and the intercessory prayer topic uh, caught my attention because uh, intercessory prayer is this belief that you can uh, use prayer to intercede in people's health. And the intercessory prayer studies are a series of studies, and there's quite a few of them, in which people attempt to measure the impact of prayer on people's wellness. And you could imagine, well, they follow all of the uh, usual uh, structures of, uh, of uh, randomized controlled trials. So a bunch of people in, say, Denver uh, uh, pray for people in the ICU in New York. The people in the ICU are blinded. They don't know they're being prayed for or, or such. And uh, you try to see whether there's a difference in outcome. And um, I think most people in medicine find that sign kind of strange and, and weird. Uh, but I think it tells us a lot about um, uh, sometimes the way we are in medicine, the way we construe problems. But this notion that you could presume that prayer is just another intervention, such as a medication or radiation treatment, and that you could measure its impact, um, raises really interesting problems and challenges. You know, uh, suddenly you start to say, well, what about the dose of prayer? What about, uh, uh, can you overpray or mispray? What if the person receiving the prayer uh, has a different belief uh, or religion than the person praying? Um, uh, and it, it leads to all sorts of bizarre and strange questions. And so, uh, uh, you know, I thought it was really an interesting um, sort of little foray into uh, what, uh, you know, really how we sort of believe and, and arrive at decisions in medicine. Um, and there's even, a, as you probably know, there's a Cochrane review. In fact, there's two Cochrane reviews. And uh, I guess it sort of also speaks to the tendency sometimes within scientific 
groups to be very literal in your understanding that, you know, well, we, we treat, you know, uh, chemotherapy, we have to treat the intervention of, of uh, prayer the same way we treat an intervention such as chemotherapy, and so we need to measure it in the same way. Um, and I guess I find that uh, kind of interesting and um, puzzling at times. Yeah, well, the thing I enjoyed most about that talk is I think I think certainly a, a big part of the the audience when when we first heard that talk I think walked away thinking oh we're laughing about the you know well how well, how ridiculous is it that someone would study intercessory prayer uh, and its effect on on whatever outcome and I, I, I you had a couple of just memorable lines in there like is intercessory prayer more or less effective than Lasix. Um, but what I, what I loved about the talk was that in, in many ways I found it to be a sort of uh, veiled and entertaining way of, of looking at the problems with evidence-based medicine. And you've written extensively uh, on this topic. In fact, you have a whole website that, um, called limitsofebm.org uh, where you, you go into some of your critiques, uh, I think, on a, on a philosophical level with EBM. Um, and, you know, like this this whole idea about intercessory prayer uh, and evidence-based medicine kind of illustrates the, the problem, I think, that you highlight that, you know, if you if you just study every intervention as if it's, you know, another medication without really thinking about what it does or, you know, maybe historically how we would think about biological plausibility or the mechanistic way that that, that thing works, then you kind of run into these problems where you're, you're just chasing these endpoints Um and not really understanding, you know, what the issues are, or, or whether what you're doing is as actually uh, worthwhile or not. And and obviously, you can talk about this um, in a much more eloquent way than me. But can can you talk a little bit more about what are what are the other issues that you see broad philosophically uh, or philosophically with EBM? Uh, yeah, thank you for that question, uh, Amir. It is uh, it is a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart. And uh, you're right. The uh, the work on intercessory prayer, as a as a number of other areas, I've done some work in on uh, uh, on uh, wine uh, uh, objectivity of wine tasting and things like that, are in many ways all sort of um, uh, outgrowths from uh, a, a deep skepticism I have about um, about uh, our approach to a lot of medical science, and um, uh, and I guess the the primary, you know, when I boil it all down to the, the, the real key questions that come to my mind are, or that challenge me are, are really twofold. The first is that, you know, it's a, it's a assumption within the uh, entire paradigm of evidence-based medicine that we can measure and quantify various aspects of medical treatment and medical results. And that sounds really good. You know, we can, we need to measure, we can measure the uh, intervention, and then we can measure the outcome. Um, but when you actually look at the specifics of those uh, interventions and those outcomes, they're very complicated. Uh, you know, the example I often use is, is uh, something such as fecal incontinence. You know, if I want to find out if my intervention is better than yours, then I want to, uh, first of all, uh, be able to measure the degree of someone's incontinence, and then uh, also measure my intervention. And, the, and then be able to measure it after my intervention or the uh, outcome afterward and see whether I've made an improvement or not. And the, the problem is that while well, you can create nice tools and instruments for measuring incontinence, they don't capture the essence of, of the incontinence phenomena uh, entirely. And that it's really, you know, each person experiences it somewhat differently. For some, it's the, you know, it's, it's the fact that they can't go out and socialize. For some, it's other factors about it. It's the soiling of the underwear. It's the whether it happens at night. And no instrument can adequately capture the, the nuances of it. And so I think we often forget that we, um, uh, you know, what we're doing is really very crudely measuring uh, phenomena. And then because numbers come out at the end, we somehow think that we've, you know, we've got a hard number, you know, my intervention uh, improved it uh, by 15%, therefore it must be better. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is that it's, it's much more complicated. Um, you know, the intercessory prayer studies are interesting because they're all over the place. And I think one of the, this leads to the second challenge I have with evidence-based medicine uh, is that um, I don't know that we're always uh, uh, impressed or change our views based on evidence. I think that even if a bunch of studies came out showing that intercessory prayer worked, most people wouldn't believe them. 
and uh, and the reason is that it doesn't really fit our overall um, view of the way medicine works or the way our our interventions work. Um, and I, in general, I don't know that we're often convinced by evidence. Um, I think that uh, usually we use evidence to support our belief systems. Um, and uh, create a narrative that we find compelling. And if the evidence doesn't really support that or fit into our narrative, then we tend to dismiss it and, uh, and disregard it. And I think that plays out in a lot of journal clubs as well, where I can't say I've ever been to a journal club where you know, the vast majority, let alone everyone, but even the vast majority of people say, yeah, this is a great study. I'm gonna change the way I do things or I'm gonna do it this way. I think the way we change our views is sort of incremental. We get lots of evidence, we have conversations, we sleep on it, we ponder, and then, and then ultimately we, we uh, maybe try something, it seems to work, and, uh, and we go on. So I guess really, you know, to, to go back to your original question, it's, um, I think there's sort of an assumption in evidence-based medicine that we can be directed by the evidence and that it will tell us how we should proceed. But I think it's often a case of the, uh, uh, of the tail wag wagging the dog, that, the, uh, uh, that mostly it's our belief systems up front that determine how we interpret evidence or what evidence we even consider. I think that's a, a very cogent critique. The counter argument to that, and well, where they talk about this idea that there are a lot of interventions in medicine that made sense uh, mechanistically, biologically, that had biological plausibility. You know, the, the classic example being stenting for renal artery stenosis and hypertension. But when you looked at the big randomized control trials, it didn't seem to make a difference in, in any of the outcomes that you'd care about, like mortality or uh, morbidity, um, even though it made biological sense that if you stent the renal artery when you have renal artery stenosis, that you would improve outcomes. Um, so how do you, you know, if, if you think that there are issues with evidence-based medicine, as you brought up, and certainly this, this is a, probably a bigger problem in surgery than, than perhaps even in medicine, but how would you respond to that critique that, you know, well, there's a lot of things that we don't really know how they work, and so there's no really better way to figure out what we should be doing other than to run randomized controlled trials? Yeah, so uh, it's a good point, and I, uh, I, I guess I would respond, you know, I know that one of the original impetuses or, or uh, ideas behind evidence-based medicine had to do with the fact that people would often treat people with an acute MI with a beta blocker. And it was sort of assumed that you wanted to avoid tachyarrhythmias. And it turned out that when they studied it, people who got a beta blocker ended up having a worse outcome. And, uh, and that sort of said, you see, physiologic uh, uh, rationale is not sufficient. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, it, it, you know, we need to have evidence to support it. Um, and I would say that maybe we've gone a little bit the other way. Um, there are times when physiologic rationale makes sense. Um, and obviously it's what informs a lot of our, uh, our studies in the first place. Um, but um, I guess I think the, the way we make decisions and, and the way patient care is much more complicated than just carrying out a study. And, and the fact is, it's very, very difficult. Much of the phenomena we're trying to measure is inherently qualitative and just because we give it a number doesn't mean it's it's real. It's you know it's a, it's a often a facade of objectivity, but you know that doesn't really um, exist. I have more to say about that, but um, I think that's sort of the uh, uh, one of the uh, important factors. I think the way a lot of our treatments evolve. It's not that I don't think studies are important, and that I don't think. Um, uh, we should do research. That's uh, on the contrary. I think it's really important. But I do think that um, we have to be very thoughtful that the way research informs uh, treatment um, is is not a simple, you know, uh, from A to B um, uh, type of experience. I think the medical community functions very much like a marketplace. Uh, we've all experienced lots of treatments that come in. They have a 90 percent uh, 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 success rate or, or efficient efficacy rate initially, and then it gets out into the marketplace of individual practitioners, and then we find out that actually it wasn't so good. I mean, the fistula plug is a wonderful example of that for fistula and ano, but uh, countless examples of that. So I think ultimately, you know, we do research. Um, we uh, uh, the marketplace of medical treatment sort of. Um, goes on. And then um, often I find then once we've shown that it doesn't seem to work in the marketplace, then we sort of do research um, uh, that corroborates ultimately what the marketplace has shown. We sort of, the, the research ends up uh, supporting it. So I think there's just this very complex back and forth between 
the way we do research and the way we um, make our decisions uh, and that it's not a simple uh, uh, decision. Well, I think it's been no more evident than now with COVID, right? Because, you know, there there's so much information um, and, and, the, and the real challenge now in some ways is that everyone can find the data to support their particular opinion or their particular, um, you know, leaning or bias, you know, whether you're an anti-vaxxer or whether you're a huge proponent of, of the vaccines, whether or not they have side effects or not, you know what I mean? So there, there's, it's, it's never been more apparent now that, that science is not just this sterile, abstract thing that scientists do in an ivory tower, but really that it is an interplay with society and, and uh, societal values and culture. Can you talk a little bit more about the fistula plug story? You write about it beautifully on, on your website, and I think it illustrates these concepts. Yeah, uh, and, and before I do, though, I, I'll say one thing. People often ask me, you know, if you're criticizing EBM, uh, uh, you know, what's the alternative? And uh, I guess the response I have to that is that when people, um, when when uh, initially, you know, for many uh, uh, eras, for many centuries, people thought that uh, all of the planets of the Earth went around the Earth, the so-called geocentric uh, model of the universe. And then the heliocentric model came in and the Earth revolved around the sun. And, um, you know, if you ask people what um, uh, why did people think for so long that the Earth went around or that the, all the planets went around the Earth? People would say because it looks that way. But the truth is it would look exactly the same way if the Earth revolved around the sun. It's really how we interpret it. And so I think just by being wary and skeptical of some of the aspects about evidence, um, that helps us um, uh, interpret the evidence in a different way. And maybe we don't have the same uh, 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 assuredness that certain things mean certain things. The case of the fistula plug, I think, is really fascinating because the people who developed it, I won't go into the details of the treatment, but the, the people who developed it and who ultimately uh, had a patent on it um, uh, published initially uh, uh, research showing a 80 to 90 percent success rate. Um, and then a couple of other studies uh, uh, corroborated that. And I personally thought this was great. I was going to give the, it made some physiologic sense uh, as well. You were closing the internal opening of the fistula. You were uh, uh, providing a matrix for the fistula tract to close over and, uh, and providing drainage externally. It seemed to be a very, uh, uh, it seemed to have a lot of good physiologic rationale. And, and sure enough, it seemed to work in, in practice. But then I started doing it. And of course, like many things, it, it didn't seem to be as simple as as the uh, uh, teaching videos or the uh, uh, people presenting at meetings made it come about. And then, you know, after doing half a dozen with uh, zero success, I revisited my approach to it. And, um, and I probably did 10 or 12 overall, but never really found that it worked. And then I started, uh, you know, a couple of years passed, I re reviewed the literature. And of course, the, the numbers went way down, it went from 80 to 90% to uh, um, you know, uh, as low as five or ten percent, or 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 such, and I loved, uh, you know, in one of the abstracts, I think it was Steve Wexner's abstract on the on the topic. You know, was the, there was this very pregnant line towards the end of their uh, uh, conclusion was that um, further studies will have to be done to explain uh, the uh, variation in outcomes uh, between different studies. You know, and we're talking about you know, fifteen or twenty percent. Uh, success rate up to 85 or 90 percent. And that's a pretty extraordinary variation. Uh, you know, if your money manager uh, told you we could go from this or that, you'd probably be taking your money out pretty quickly. So, um, uh, but I think that doesn't so much um, tell us uh, that the fistula plug is a bad thing or any such thing. It just tells us that the type of science, medical science, is extraordinarily complicated. I mean, that's why we see such diverse variation in, uh, in outcomes, because the fact that the things we're measuring are not simple quantitative measures in many instances, trying to measure whether a, uh, a fistula is healed. It's, it's kind of interesting. You'd think it'd be very easy or, but it's actually much more complicated uh, than just that. One of the talks that uh, you alluded to that we were all to, or lucky enough to be at and you had us drinking wine was exactly that, was, was uh, sort of the world of wine tasting. I was wondering if you could walk our listeners through your view on that particular topic as well, because it's, it's fantastic. 
uh, thanks, Chad. Um, yeah, I, so I, uh, the wine, my interest in wine tasting or, or, or uh, really derives also from my, my uh, interest in and skepticism or wariness about evidence-based medicine. Um, and it's the notion that, you know, there is objective uh, value or quality in a wine. And when you evaluate wines, you, you find out that, uh, you know, the, the cost to produce a bottle of wine uh, is essentially the same wherever you do it, you know, between two to $10 a bottle. It just doesn't cost more. Even a, a, a $10,000 bottle of wine only costs that much to produce. And when you go to the wine store, of course, there's a whole bunch of different prices. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, there's the transportation and all that, but you have to ask yourself, well, what is it that distinguishes the value or the cost of a bottle of wine? And, and it's because we have this notion that there's somehow objective taste or objective uh, um, objectivity to what makes for a good wine. Um, and, you know, on first view, of course, wine tasting seems very, very subjective. Uh, but then there are these various experts out there who tell us that, uh, you know, certain vintages and certain uh, uh, productions are extremely good and they're ones we should like. Um, but I, I, you know, I, uh, you know, it's I think there's actually a bunch of literature out there that uh, shows that most experts, even true experts, even Robert Parker, um, can't really uh, distinguish or can't even tell if they've tasted the same wine uh, before, although Robert Parker maintains he can. Uh, he has a, an extraordinary gustatory memory and he can actually recall every wine he's tasted over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, uh, uh, the truth is that most of us can't. And I think it's sort of highlighted by the fact that, um, uh, you know, it's such a, you know, uh, wine tasting or, or taste is such a subjective experience um, that how do I know you're tasting the same thing as, as I'm tasting? Uh, a few years ago, I tried, uh, I sent off uh, on a lark, I did 23andMe and did my genetic uh, uh, background. And one of the things that comes back when you do that is um, uh, you get some information about whether you have certain genes that allow you to, say, uh, smell uh, aspergenic acid in, um, uh, in your urine after you've eaten asparagus, or whether um, cilantro tastes bitter to you. And as you probably know, about 30% of people don't have this gene. And so they don't smell uh, a strong odor when they, uh, if they eat asparagus, but about 70% of people or so do have this gene. And if you ask people who don't have it, you know, whether they can smell anything, they often just look at you, you know, quizzically and say, what are you talking about? But those of us who can smell it really notice, you know, and, uh, but, uh, and the same with some people find cilantro very bitter. Other people say, what are, you, what are you talking about? It tastes terrific. I love cilantro. Um, and so, but the point behind this is that if cilantro and asparagus uh, can be so different, how do I know I'm tasting the same wine as you? How do I know that tannins or other components of wine don't, um, uh, I don't have different uh, genetics that makes me appreciate them in a different way. So it's really all about uh, a, a critique about the objectivity of wine tasting and, and why I think that you should never spend more than $20 on a bottle of wine. Um, uh, and it's not that wine isn't good and, uh, and, uh, and yummy and that people don't really enjoy it. It's just that my $10 bottle of wine may be your $300 bottle, um, but just because someone says that it's worth $300 doesn't mean it should be. I love that. I, I, I love it so much. You've, you've sol solved all my questions when it comes to wine. The first talk I ever saw you give was actually about the the economics and, and the potential long-term reality of cigarette smoking. Um, so we've gone from wine. Maybe you could uh, highlight um, you know, your your view and what some of the, uh, the evidence is surrounding that as well. Sure. Smoking, smoking um, uh, uh, that the lecture about smoking uh, really derives back from an interest I, I had in, um, you know, um, my bioethics background and um, whether we should hold people accountable for their lifestyle choices. And uh, it originally, I did it, uh, I originally got interested in this when I was a resident and I did a, a paper on um, whether people who have alcoholic cirrhosis should be, uh, 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 should have op the option of having a liver transplant versus people whose disease was ostensibly not um, self-induced. Uh, um, and then uh, I pursued it further in other forms of, you know, lifestyle and, uh, but smoking is the most interesting one, just because the outcome is so, uh, is so clear. And I think most of us have a 
and, and this is, I'm certainly speaking on my own behalf, uh, have a primordial instinct that we want to, you know, we want the system to be fair and we want to hold people accountable and, uh, and people who smoke are somehow uh, breaching the public trust because they cost the healthcare system more and we should, we should hold them accountable for, you know, their extra healthcare costs. And so when you do a deep dive into the topic, um, it, it turns out that, yeah, smokers do cost a lot of money. They, uh, uh, they get certain diseases related to their smoking, you know, cardiovascular and respiratory diseases, um, as well as uh, they uh, start more fires in bed and they get into more and more vehicle accidents and they miss work more often. And there's a whole bunch of um, uh, factors that you can quantify and say, you know, this is approximately how much they cost the economy. But if you're going to hold them accountable for something like that, um, then you have to also say, well, what about other things? You know, uh, they pay a lot of excise taxes and it turns out about 70 to 80 percent of any pack of cigarettes are is taxed either from the federal or provincial government. Everyone wants a hand in it. And when you really crunch the numbers, you sort of can see actually the excise taxes come pretty close to offsetting you know, any extra costs uh, associated with uh, smoking. But then it doesn't really stop there. It turns out the tobacco industry makes a significant economic contribution to society. You know, there's the, uh, the growers, the producers, or the uh, 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 manufacturers, the retailers, the transportation people, um, all of whom contribute to the, you know, economics of society. Uh, and then it also turns out that um, uh, smokers um, uh, die on average about 14 years earlier than non-smokers. Um, and when you crunch the numbers of of uh, you know uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of money they would get from uh, social security, it works out to be about eighty or ninety thousand dollars that that are not uh, dispensed on average per smoker uh, because they die prior to accessing or just shortly after accessing the the pension system. And um, when you start to really crunch these numbers, you sort of go, wow, actually smokers. Um, seem to more than offset, they seem to make a, a financial contribution because they've been paying taxes their whole lives. And then the, the argument goes even further, and it turns out that smoking tends to be a reasonably efficient way of dying uh, from a, from a um, medical point of view, and that um, uh, there are, uh, uh, if you don't smoke, um, uh, people who die from smoking tend not to get very resource expensive diseases of old age. Um, and there's a whole bunch of uh, modeling studies out there that show that if you got everyone to stop smoking today, you'd initially see a dip in the cost of healthcare for the next 15 to 20 years, but then it would start to rise because these people would be getting, you know, uh, hip replacements and dementia and uh, lots of other diseases. And it turns out, you know, uh, you don't really, uh, when you prevent smoking, you don't really save costs, you just defer them. Uh, and so all of this really is, is, is the fact that anyone I think who has looked at this in a serious fashion will tell you that smokers make a huge net financial contribution to our society. Um, uh, and that frankly, we should be holding non-smokers accountable. Um, and so what would we be holding smokers accountable for? Less costs <laughs> and uh, uh, subsidizing those who don't smoke uh, and, uh, and such. So that's the, that's the gist of the argument. And, um, uh, but you know, like any of these, the, the point is really just to get you to say, ah, you know what, that, um, that makes me reconsider my original principle, which was you know, holding people accountable. And, and maybe I wasn't right to sort of jump on that train and think that just because you have a bad habit. Uh, because if we're really going to do that, then maybe we should be thinking that people who live more riskier lifestyles, such as skiers or rock climbers or others, should be paying higher premiums or, or should not have access to the same healthcare resources. Yeah, I mean, clearly, so much of what you do, and, and I hope we've we've highlighted some of, of of the work that you've done to help all of us kind of open our minds and 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 see the world with a bit more complexity. You were part of the COVID pandemic response committee in Calgary, I think, if I'm correct, and we actually t talked about this a bit before I uh, finished residency. Um, but I'm curious what that was like in terms of thinking about that you know, terrible situation that that we, I think, thankfully in, in Canada largely escaped, um, which was that this, the, the, what they had to experience in Italy where, you know, there was a real sense of having to ration resources. How do you think from an ethical standpoint about um, the, the idea of having to ration resources 
in a setting like COVID where there really would be huge demands on the healthcare system? How do you even go about approaching a topic like that? I was a little, you know, I didn't have a huge role in it. Um, and uh, I did, I was really involved in mostly the, uh, uh, from the Department of Surgery side about what would happen to acute care surgery should, you know, uh, there be a, uh, 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 a huge influx of, you know, COVID cases and a lot of all ICU beds, et cetera, were taken over. Um, I think, you know, this is ultimately a, a question of, of resource allocation and justice. And um, one of the things I think that is, is clear is that there are different types of resources. There are resources that are fixed and finite and you can't get more of them. Um, and a classic example of that are livers, you know, uh, liver transplantation. How do you allocate livers? Because if, if someone gets one, some other person doesn't and they die. And then there are a lot of other resources which are more elastic. Um, and in the case of, uh, say, surgical care, acute care surgery, uh, the resources are relatively elastic. Um, you know, our ability to still, even in the midst of, a, of a, an incredible surge of a pandemic, we'd still have enough um, elasticity in the system to be able to take care of patients with perforated viscuses and, and uh, other illnesses. And then there's this sort of middle ground where, um, ICU and ICU uh, ventilators and beds and, and such are, are somewhat fixed, but also a little bit elastic. We have extra ventilators in the case of uh, the OR. Uh, they may not be the same types of ventilators, but um, uh, we have you know, room or space where we could expand out. And so it was really a question of trying to say, well, what are, what are the absolute limits to our resources and, and how would we sort of incrementally add on to what we have if we need to? Um, I wasn't as involved in much, as much with the, uh, the work in the ICU. John Courtbeek, as you probably know, did a lot of work in that area. Um, from a, 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 the surgical resources point of view, I don't think it was as big an issue. Um, I think we had enough elasticity and accommodation in the system. But then the question is, how do you arrange for or, or make a just decision in that regard? And that is a, a, a challenge. And, and um, there, uh, you know, uh, the sort of general principle that I think most people abide by in, in some form or another is um, measuring the outcome in some form. You don't want to spend a lot of resources on people who have, you know, a very small chance of succeeding, but are going to use up a lot of resources. Um, you'd like to optimize, you know, the number of people who survive, but it's not just that. We also all recognize, even though we don't want to necessarily put it in absolute writing, but we recognize that younger people um, who have more innings to play in life, so to speak, um, uh, are people you might want to, uh, 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 you know, give preferential treatment to. Um, Older folks will often say, we paid our taxes, we want, you know, what's our due. Uh, but many people are, are open to the um, uh, to being flexible within the system. I think um, I, I'm glad we never did really have to. And up to this point, we haven't had to in the course of the pandemic make true uh, uh, life and death decisions. Um, but I think those are some of the principles that would probably uh, or that should play a role. Um, and then it's not just having the principles, though, then it's really the execution and creating a, a mechanism where such decisions can be made in a fashion that's um, uh, transparent, uh, at relatively fair, and, um, uh, and, uh, and people have an opportunity to, um, uh, to uh, appeal it if they, if they wish to. The final comment I'll say in this is that I often make the decision, a distinction in these situations between outcomes which are unfair and outcomes which are unfortunate. Um, our goal is to try to be fair and treat people fairly and justly, um, but we have to recognize that some of the outcomes may be unfortunate um, and, um, uh, and that's inevitable in a system where we have finite resources. Yeah, thankfully we really didn't have to get to that point in, in, uh, in Alberta and, and BC because um, that would have been really, really hard and, and you, you could see that from from reading descriptions of, of healthcare workers in other places having to go through that uh, i think the next big challenge though as a society is you know as we sort of get to this point where we're uh, really rolling out the vaccines and and uh, thankfully uh, the vast majority of canadians are are getting the vaccine i think 
the next question we're really going to have to tackle from an ethical standpoint is how do we deal with or how do we treat those who choose not to get the vaccine you know we've already alluded to the fact that there's so much misinformation that's out there and 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 you know it you you do have to feel for people who kind of um are wary or suspicious of of getting a vaccine but in terms of of reopening our society in terms of travel uh, you know there's a lot of ethical questions even you know in terms of our healthcare system uh, with those who who choose not to get vaccinated and then suffer from COVID and then COVID-related uh, complications. H- how do you sort of frame that in your head, uh, Dr. Rosen, in terms of thinking about um, h- how we deal with that uh, portion of our, our population that will choose not to get the vaccine? And I, I know this is a this is a big question and, and not an easy one, uh, maybe that can be encapsulated in, a, in an hour's podcast. No, but it's a great question and a really important question. Uh, uh, so I, I hear you loud and clear, Amir. Um, you know, uh, we have lots of restrictions on our freedoms in, in, in society. You know, we have to wear seatbelts uh, in most uh, places, even in the United States. You have to wear a helmet if you're riding a motorbike. And most of us recognize that there are some limits on our freedom and we um, uh, abide by them. And usually um, we accept that the state has a certain paternalistic role and um, and the you know, even if it's in our best interest, you know, uh, we have that, you know, we accept that. Um, and the same, I guess, goes with masks, you know, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think the mask is very similar to the sort of motorcycle helmet, people who are really resentful, but they accept that they have to wear a motorcycle helmet or a seatbelt or get a driver's license. It's kind of interesting. But when you get to, um, and, and then usually, of course, no, not always, but usually the impact of not abiding by those rules is that it's going to affect you personally and you alone. The interesting question about vaccination or uh, uh, people who are hesitant about getting vaccinated um, is, you know, what are the, it has an implication or uh, impact on people who aren't vaccinated. In some ways, it's a little bit like secondhand smoke. And um, how do you uh, accept the fact that we want to make sure that those people who you know, want absolute safety are, are protected, uh, but people uh, uh, who don't want to get vaccinated, you know, have a right. I think the actual process of, I mean, I think it's the difference between a helmet and the vaccination is that one is a very, you know, personal, intimate uh, uh, experience getting a vaccination and um, and that we can't sort of just presume that it's like wearing a helmet. It is, you know, a, a bio, not a violation, but a, uh, a trespass on a person's body. And so, um, I, you know, I don't think there's a simple answer to ensuring everyone gets vaccinated. Um, The, uh, you know, for years, it's been debated within the healthcare system, whether we should uh, compel all uh, healthcare workers to have the flu vaccine, because they, uh, uh, even if they don't get very sick, or or they can transmit it to people who are extremely vulnerable in the hospital. And um, there's been a bit of, you know, a split on this, some provinces and some Ethicists feel that uh, you should force, uh, you know, it's it's part of a, a requirement, just as we expect healthcare work workers to have uh, hepatitis uh, vaccination as well. They should be compelled to get um, uh, the flu vaccine. Um, uh, and then there are others who say that, you know, we have to draw a line at some point and, um, and that uh, there's lots of questions about the value of the flu vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I don't think there's a simple answer. I think what will happen, and I've already seen it happening, is that many people who have vaccine hesitancy are gradually coming along and um, um, and sort of recognizing lots of other people are getting it and recognizing the the uh, uh, benefits of it, uh, not just that they won't get sick, but the, back, the fact that the economy can open, that they can travel again, um, and that they're not putting loved, other loved ones or vulnerable loved ones at, risks, at risk. I think there'll always be a certain number of people who will uh, resist it for a whole myriad of reasons. Um, and I don't think we can compel them. Um, I don't think we should. I think the, uh, uh, you know, it would be like forcing someone to have an operation that uh, they don't want to have. I think the potential for uh, uh, regretting it is huge. And so I just, um, uh, but it, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't compel it. I think the good news is I think that from a practical point of view, the majority of people will probably get um, uh, uh, get the vaccine and that will reach some form of 
herd immunity, um, and that we might even find that people will jump on when when they you know when the incentives are are clear that they can travel or they can do various other things. You're you're well known in in the medical school for teaching the med students on both ethics and professionalism, and certainly we recognize those two concepts are different, but there is a Venn diagram to it. They are related. We're, we're curious how. I guess, firstly, uh, your perception of the topic of professionalism has changed over the years. And then secondarily, um, perhaps directly, how social media um, has sort of informed uh, that more recently. So I, I do distinguish, and the med school distinguishes between ethics and professionalism. And my real domain there is bioethics. But as you mentioned, there's a, a fair amount of overlap one, one thing I would say, and, and though this is a little bit more on the ethics side, is that I'm, I've always been very careful about um, ethics. I'm not even terribly comfortable saying teaching ethics because, um, you know, ethics is very different or, you know, ethical reflection is very different than um, a lot of the medical knowledge or a lot of the knowledge that students acquire in med school. When people come to med school, very few of them, or, or for that matter, in residency, very few of them have strong views about Starling's law of the heart, um, but they do come with strong views about uh, uh, physician-assisted dying or um, uh, other, you know, abortion or other uh, issues that typically uh, uh, arise in the course of medical school. And so I think that as a, a person who instructs that area, my approach is much more uh, uh, similar to, say, a, 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 you know, an art historian um, in that, you know, people come to art with their preconceived views and and ideas, uh, and my guide, my job is somewhat to guide them and help them uh, flesh out some of the details of their understanding about it. Uh, but I'm not really teaching uh, about the art um, per se. And I guess I think um, ethics is very similar. And and I I suppose on reflection, I would think professionalism is a little bit the same way. Uh, I do think that what it means to be a professional um, in medicine still is very real. It's very important. And I think um, uh, we all sort of know what it is. Um, and uh, although it's very, very difficult to um, uh, uh, to clearly define, um, uh, there was a famous case uh, you may remember about what distinguished pornography from erotica. And the judge ultimately said, I, I, I knows it when I sees it. And I think that we all know professionalism um, when we seize it or we see violations in professionalism or at least obvious uh, violations in professionalism. But there is a, a, a gray zone in the middle. And I do think it changes with time. Our, our, our views about what makes a professional, our, our ethical views change with time. And, um, and I think um, as, as a physician ages, he or she needs to um, uh, acknowledge that, you know, uh, the way we thought a professional that should behave may change a little bit um, uh, with time. The uh, And I just, as a really good example of that, in about, about 30 years ago, when the Supreme Court of Canada considered physician-assisted dying, it, uh, it uh, turned it down and rejected it. And it was a close decision, uh, five to four, um, but ultimately they, they uh, 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 felt it was unconstitutional. And then, you know, 25 years later, uh, they reconsidered it and it was unanimously approved. Um, and that's really a, a, an indication of how our personal views or values and beliefs and society in general changes. And so I think, you know, when I think about professionalism, I think it's it's changed and evolved since I started out as a, as a physician and, uh, um, and that it will continue to change. In the area of social media, I think we're we're starting to appreciate the fact that um, uh, there are certain things we and because it's still relatively new, we're starting to appreciate that you know certain behaviors online are are not appropriate or or are of questionable uh, uh, professionalism, whereas uh, other ones that we thought a few years ago weren't are, are probably quite acceptable. I'm still struggling with it and. Um, uh, uh, in the only other comment I would say in this is, is that I think in many instances, it's not so much a reflection of um, one's professional view, but it's also a reflection of one's uh, personal approach to privacy and and, uh, um, and not being out there. Some people feel very strongly that they need to stand up and, and make their views public uh, on social media. 
others, uh, even though they hold very, very strong views, just don't want to, uh, don't feel compelled uh, uh, to put their views out there because they feel very passionate about their privacy and don't want uh, to attract that sort of attention. Uh, so it's a it's a huge topic, and I know Sean Langenfeld gave a, a great podcast or was involved in a great pod, podcast a few months ago on the topic, and I think he really found a lot of his comments very illuminating and, uh, yeah, inspiring. If you could go back in time and uh, give yourself advice as a, a senior resident or as a chief resident, knowing what you know now, what would that advice be? Uh, you know, I've thought about this question because I've heard you ask it to several of your, uh, your previous uh, participants, and... You know, I would tell myself uh, to to do uh, exactly uh, what I wanted to do, to be passionate about the the topics. You know, I I although I I did at one point think I could do research, I realized that it really wasn't my um, my bailiwick, and that you know my area of expertise, any contributions I was going to make were going to be in in the area of bioethics or some of my you know uh, other you know, talks that you guys have alluded to today. Um, and so I would say um, I would probably pursue even more my uh, be true to yourself or myself and and pursue those areas. But on the whole, I wouldn't change much because I'm uh, I'm really, really blessed that I've had uh, uh, a great career, great uh, uh, leaders, uh, great mentors. And uh, so uh, I guess that's a bit of a uh, a way out of saying I wouldn't change too much uh, right now, and uh, I would just say uh, be, uh, I'm, I'm glad I was relatively true to myself, and uh, I would still uh, say be even truer to myself. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.